Welcome to Covenant Conversations. 2020 has seen several developments in the direct lending space. The debt quantum of deals has been ever increasing. A number of deals that would have historically been funded through the syndicated Trumlin B financings or high yield financings have been funded by direct lenders. With debt quantums now regularly in the hundreds of millions of dollars and some deals hitting the billion dollar level, this is a product that is likely to only increase in importance over the next few years. With this in mind, I have the pleasure of speaking with Benoit Levine, a partner in the finance practice at Morrison and Forrester, and John Burge, a counsel in the finance practice of Morrison and Forrester, about the documentary issues in the direct lens space. Benoit and John have acted for sponsors and lenders in this sector since the early days of direct lend transactions. In this Covenant Conversations podcast, Ben and John are going to offer us some insights into the current state of play in the direct lend market, documentary evolutions in this space, and end with a discussion on potential future developments. Hi, Benoit and John. So happy to have you on our podcast today. Thanks, Shraddha. We're really great, to, uh, great, really happy to be here. All right. So, Ben, briefly, can you give us a summary of the development of direct lending markets in Europe? So here's some interesting data. Um, a private debt report for 2021 from Prequin uh, reveals that there were four, 504 sorry, active European private debt managers in 2020, up from 443 in 2019. In terms of debt raise, there was $36.8 billion equivalent raised in 2020 versus $51 billion in 2019. It's not surprising that debt raising was slightly down given the pandemic. Um, an interesting metric as well is that there was, as of June 2020, equivalent $86 billion of aggregate dry powder in Europe. So there's money out there, but there's also increased competition. The asset class investor sentiment is generally positive. The prequin data shows that on average, only 17% of investors surveyed stated that performance fell short of expectations. Investors are investing in the class for various reasons, diversification and high risk adjusted returns being the main two drivers at 66% and 38% respectively of responses. The median net internal rate of return is on the decline. Um, again, according to Prequin. Uh, in terms of pricing, at least as of March 2020, it was about 1% up, and this is according to Refinitiv. Another interesting data point put out by GCA Altium Midcaps shows that private debt volumes nearly doubled between Q3 and Q4 2020. And against this backdrop, what we saw at Morrison and Forrester is an increased or attempted increase in syndication of a tranche of the private debt piece in 2020. Thanks, Ben. You mentioned that the direct lending sector has remained active in the past six months. There's, you know, a stupendous amount of dry powder and investor interest and optimism. One of the consequences of this has been certain funders are still looking at the first out, last out structures and direct lend deals. Briefly, how does this first out, last out structure work? Yes, I mean, in terms of what the first out, last out structure is, I mean, at its very basic form, you know, it's one lender agreeing that another lender will recover um, ahead of it. So, you know, almost like a basic subordination. But um, essentially what you're looking at is the first out will be um, cheaper debt and less risky and contractually ought to recover ahead of the last out, which will be more expensive. Um, it's mainly in terms of recovery on enforcement proceeds, but that does um, get negotiated. We'll discuss that in a minute. 
Um, in terms of the identity of the FO lenders, what's interesting to see is that it's no longer just you know bank lenders, typical typical bank lenders looking at this, but but pension funds as well, for example. Pricing rise, it's in the region of 3% above LIBOR. Uh, I should note, however, that the appetite can be varied here, variable, and that's because direct lending funds um, have been able to raise, um, to raise funds with low coupon expectations, which whittle downs the need for a follow structure uh, where the expectation of the coupon will be higher. But that doesn't mean that they're you know, not, not in fashion. The evolution in the structure seems to be on the super senior side. John, what are you currently seeing in respect of the position on deals between super senior RCFs or super senior term loans and unit tranche and first out, last out structures? Well, I mean, I think the, yeah, the, the easiest position to start off with is really in relation to the super senior RCF unit tranche structure because yeah, yeah, the position in the market on those documents yeah, does now seem to be reasonably settled. Um, yeah, yeah, broadly speaking, the super senior RCF um, yeah, is given protection on the documentation in relation to their, their sort of specific position in the capital stack. Um, and so there's a fairly standard position between the super senior and the unit tranche, yeah, for example, yeah, the list of super senior revolving consent provisions. Yeah, material events of default being those that allow the super senior RCF to enforce. Um, yeah, and positions significant disposals all fairly well established. Um, yeah, yeah, and looking at the intercreditor arrangements for those deals, you know, the, the, the same applies you know, with relation to standstill periods and the circumstances which the super senior RCF can take enforcement action. I mean, what, what is interesting is the position we've seen in relation to super senior term loan and unit tranche um, and first out, last out structures. Um, and that, that's really where the super senior term loan lenders and the first out lenders you know, are expecting you know, additional protection to those historically um, provided to super senior RCF lenders, which is where those structures originally started out from. Um, you know, and, and clearly depending on the structure, you know, those additional protections being provided, for example, um, to a super senior term loan lender may well also provide those to a super senior RCF lender, um, you, you know, when they're, they're sitting alongside each other in the structure after all. So, yeah, although each credit is different, yeah, you know, not, not just from cash flow perspective, but also depending on the structure, um, yeah, you know, what what we have been seeing in a number of cases where super senior term loan lenders are coming in or first out lenders are coming into transactions, you know, even after the sign of the original documentation, you know, for example, by means of the exercise of, yeah, 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 uh, accordion facilities, you know, you know, or sell down of some of the unit tranche on a first out basis, you know, are, are things like, you know, um, you know, re requests for the first out lender to be provided with rights of first refusal if, if the last out lender wants to transfer any more of the loan, you know, to a first out position. Um, you know, we've seen requests for additional limitations on synergies, you know, in relation to the leveraged financial covenant, you know, for example, you know, limitations to cost synergies only, um, you know, caps on the amount of synergies. Yeah, yeah, and general tightening of those provisions, you know, to give the super senior term loan lender or the first out lender additional protections. Um, yeah, yeah, we've seen requests to tighten events of default, you yeah, really around materiality type provisions, yeah, yeah, and requests for them to come out. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, and also yeah, quite a focus on, on the security package. So, yeah, you've seen requests for you know, additional security, you know, in particular additional receivable security, for example and tightening of time periods for the provision of security where 
you know, if it hasn't yet been provided on the transaction, you have to be provided sooner than the you know, 90 or 120 days that might be originally proposed. Uh, yeah, yeah, and on an ongoing basis annually, um, you yeah, a shorter period for, for, for the top up for the guarantor coverage level. Um, so, so I, I think it's probably fair to say, you know, there's a lot of funders for the super senior term loan or the first out facilities who, who who are pushing for additional rights. And, you know, depending on the capital structure and depending on how important they are to the transaction, you know, they, they do or they don't achieve those. But it is certainly something that's you know, a very considered position by them when, when they come into transactions. Yeah, and I think if I can just add a point here, there's also a request to add a tier, a additional material events of default. And, and, you know, this is actually quite important from a, from a last out perspective, because that's, um, you know, when the super senior first out can take control of the enforcement actions, uh, leading, you know, to, to, to an insolvent sale, for example, of the company. Uh, the ones that we've seen come up most frequently are the incurrence of additional financial indebtedness. I mean, to the extent it ranks parry or prior to the first out liabilities, we can have some sympathy with that one. Uh, breach of acquisition undertakings, permitted payment restrictions, so really things that deal with, you know, leakage. Um, the approach generally taken on superseded revolvers is that uh, those are things that, you know, impair the position of the superseded revolver. And so we, we, we can see why we've ended up with that list of material events of default. But, you know, when, when these deals are being negotiated on a first out term loan, especially if you're, you know, sitting between... Uh, the revolver and the term loan it is it is important to kind of look at you know what's being asked and it's negotiated on a case-by-case basis um, we've also seen for example misreps um, being or tried to be added in terms of material event of default which you know doesn't always necessarily impact the position of the super senior so just something to consider Thanks, Ben. Ben, are you seeing any specific issues with regard to um, the agreement among lenders and, you know, versus the super senior RCF super senior term loan, which is governed by an intercreditor agreement. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about what the agreement amongst lenders is meant to be, it's an agreement between the first out and the last out, you know, uh, regarding or regulating the enforcement mechanics. Essentially, there's other things that are dealt with in those docs. But the real, real thing to think about and be thinking about carefully is the enforcement mechanics. Um, you know, an, another point related to that is the standstill periods relative to the super senior. Um, and so revolver that is, and, you know, the, the usual position is the stands, standstills are 90, 120, 150 days, depending on the, on the default. Um, and so any ability afforded at the first out will have to fall within this timing because um, otherwise you could end up with a super senior revolver and a super senior term loan sort of going at the box at the same time. And it's a difficult balancing act uh, because the first out don't necessarily want to be enforcing given their usual limited economics, um, but they should have the right in case the last out lenders are not proceeding with an enforcement. Um, and sometimes the last out may be dissuaded from enforcing if they know that they may lose control of the process shortly after commencing. And so the uh, agreement amongst lenders documentation that we've been involved with has come up with a number of solutions for the for this, and there are very you know it does vary across across deals, but it tends to be more protective for the first lap, first out. The idea here being that you know if they're subject to a standstill and the last out haven't kind of gotten their act together, at some point they do need to have their kick in the cap. 
So this brings us neatly on to when a deal goes into stress and, you know, there are restructuring options being examined. John, what about schemes of arrangements? How would a restructuring using a scheme of arrangement play out with regard to a deal which has an agreement among lenders? Uh, I think, yeah, yeah that, that, that's a very good question because, yeah, yeah, certainly what we haven't seen is a scheme of arrangement in the context of a transaction that has, yeah, in the UK, an agreement between lenders um, on it to date. Um, and I think it's actually quite a complex issue that has to be dealt with on, on the agreement amongst lenders. Um, you know, the real underlying difficulty is, you know, no one knows day one when they sign up to these agreements. You know, what the scheme request might be that's made made by by the company in the event that the um, the company becomes distressed. You know, he can meet variety of extension maturity dates. You know, increases or decreases of margin. You know, um, upfront deferred fees or, or literally anything else. You know, the company chooses to put forward that it's comfortable of getting seventy five percent by value of the creditor class and majority of number, and, and passing the court test to get it implemented. You know, so, so you are dealing with you know, a huge range of possibilities, you know, and a balance that by the company when, when it puts forward a scheme. Um, now, the difficulty we have is you know, you know, it isn't established under English law whether the first out, last out uh, lenders will be treated as separate classes or as the same class. Um, you know, I think you know, there's a number of views at the moment. You know, probably the predominant view is um, you know, actually you know, they will be treated as the same class because that's how, the, how they face the borrower. Um, but but you know, that, that isn't certain. So most you know, well-drafted agreement amongst lenders you see you know, you will deal with, with, with both possibilities. Um, so you know, you know, where, where does that really leave us? Well, um, you know, if you've got a single class, you know, you can see the difficulty for the first out. You know, the first out will, will tend on most these structures to be a small part of, of, of that, you know, your piece of unitranche debt. Um, you know, it would have to be over 25% to satisfy, um, you know, the 75% by value and be able to block that. You know, in an awful lot of cases, you know, that simply isn't the case. Um, you know, and also it'd have to constitute a majority in number. Um, and, difficulty is you know most of those first out last out deals you know that the last out piece although it may well be managed by a single single manager you know there, there will be a number of funds making that money available you know so the, the sort of outcome of that is you know actually you know without more you know the first out will be entirely disregarded um you know, if you look across the market on aals and you know you know there, there are a number out there um, yeah, 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 I think yeah, there's different ways of how the first out are dealt with um, where you have a single class. Um, yeah, yeah, one example is you could look at whether the scheme would impact them um, and then, then that would determine whether or not they would have a say. Now, that, that tends to be a bit, bit too blunt. Um, yeah, yeah, it doesn't tend to get incorporated into documentation because, you know, frankly, you know, it's quite a difficult assessment for anyone to make at a time at which you know, everyone's desperate for an assessment to be made. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And another possibility would be, yeah, yeah, you could look at yeah, where the value breaks in, in the structure at that point in time. And you, you could argue that, you know, if actually the value is breaking in the first out, you know, the first out should, should determine the voting. You know, they, they are the creditors with an interest in the scheme at that point in time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas on the face of it, that's attractive, you know, 
in, in practice, you know, that, 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 that has its difficulties. You know, you're, you're usually looking at the sponsor or the company, you know, not, not always, but be, you, 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 you're usually looking at an insolvency comparator where the whole purpose of doing a scheme is to avoid avoid the insolvency occurring and, and the transaction continuing. Um, so, so those sort of value judgments where the value breaks are, are, are quite difficult in, in this circumstance as well. You, you know, and so we've tended to see people steer away from those. Um, I think interesting what, you know, where people tend to come out of all of that is, is actually quite a pragmatic solution because you know, you know, it, it's dressed up in different ways and different agreements between lenders, but often you'll see you know, a percentage of both the first out and the last out voting separately have, have to vote in favour of it. So, so you, you often see 75% of the first out by value and 75% of the last out by value having to vote in favour of a scheme. Now, that's not necessarily perfect, um, but to be honest, it reflects the reality that by entering into an AAL, you know, without the borrower being a party to it, you know, the first out and the last out are pretty well tied into an arrangement between both of them. You know, so it does have a fairly sensible, pragmatic outcome. And you get similar similar issues arise with, with respect to separate classes and whether actually you say, you know, even if you're voting in separate classes, you actually you still have to get the consent of, of, of a relevant percentage of, of the other class. But you know, ultimately, it's important to bear in mind that although this, this tends to be a point that gets looked at in some detail on AAL, the documentation protections are still there for the first out and the last out. You know, if actually a scheme gets blocked because you can't get 75% the first out and 75% the last out to vote in favour, well, actually, the protections are still under the document. You know, the first out are still coming out on top. You do still have your enforcement mechanisms that, that, mechanisms that have been negotiated. Um, and all of those things will provide the backdrop for a negotiation between the first out and last out creditors at the time at which um, you know, any, any scheme is proposed if actually the documentation do doesn't take care of this. Um, so you know, it is a complex issue. You know, it is a difficult issue. Um, but, but ultimately, I think we've got to bear in mind, you know, you know, these things are dealt with on the documentation anyway in the ordinary course, even if you can't get a scheme passed. So a lot of complex considerations for you to take into account when you're drafting documents because you're looking forward to provide for, you know, as many eventualities as you can possibly consider at that point. Looking Absolutely. forward to the future, what are the potential structures that you might see based on what you have seen in the past, given that this is an area where structures are evolving? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a very good question, Shweta. I think yeah, 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 no, no one has a crystal ball, unfortunately, but I think... You know, the increase in sizes of unitranch deals over the past past few years has, has really shown that the unitranch product is um is really a mainstream lending product rather than just a cornerstone of the mid market. Um, you, 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 what have we seen over that period? Well, you know, we've seen you know, increased flexibilities being built into into the large unitranch deals. You know, you know, from the term known B market. You know, for example, your know, grower baskets are, are are common in in the upper end of the unitranch market now. You know, and significant EBITDA adjustment provisions you, you, you are also going in there. So, so it's proved to be a very, very, very adaptable product. Um, yeah, you know, I think going forward, well, yeah, I think the, the, the key driver for the sort of super senior RCF unitranch split is, is because, you know, 
funds generally don't like or can't provide revolving credit facilities. Um, you know, yeah, but, but if we did see a shift towards funds being comfortable in providing RCFs or, or, or transactions where actually RCFs weren't, you know, weren't used on and off, you know, you know, more like term debt, you know, businesses that didn't rely on RCFs as much. So, for example, you know, didn't need ancillary lines or all those ancillary needs could be dealt with under um, could be dealt with you know, under, under their baskets, for example. You, know, you could see the value of the super seniors being a um, RCF ranking at a senior level. You, 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 you're falling away. You know, that was really meant to be there as an incentive for, for, for bank lenders to take that facility. Um, and if that falls away, you know, the benefit of it being super senior also falls away. You know, it's subject to obviously you know, you know, pricing issues. Uh, I think that the, the other issue to you know, bear in mind is, you know, there's no reason to assume that the super senior RCF, super senior term loan, unit tranche structure is, is a fixed feature of the direct lend market, although it's a very strong product. You know, but you know, as deals get larger, you know, you know, there, there's no real reason why it couldn't evolve, for example, into a sort of senior mezzanine market. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a distinct possibility. You know, if we look back to the early days of uni tranche, you know, one, one of the selling points, and, and to be honest, one, one of the very strong selling points now in a number of deals is, you know, you're dealing with with one party who can provide this credit. But, you know, we've moved to clubs of clubs of funders on some of the larger uni tranche deals now. Um, and so, so actually, you know, it's not impossible to see uh, sort of move towards a senior mezzanine type structure with different funds providing senior and mezzanine debt and you, you're going back to the discussions around who has who has what rights at what time and potentially the senior can enforce first and the mezzanine afterwards you, you, you're back to where we were you know, you know 10 15 years ago in the market but it's all you, you know, it's really a matter of you know, what investors want and what investors are willing willing to invest in um, and you know, at the moment, a lot of the market is covered by the unit tranche. You know, you know, also, also with pick facilities on top of that at present. But you know, there's an awful amount of technology out there that can be used and can be applied. Um, you you, you broaden out the interest in the product and, and the investor classes in it. So I think will prove very, very resilient, and I think we will see it continue to develop over the next over the next few years. You know, as as the need remains in the market for it. Sounds like a very exciting field to be in at the moment with lots of uh, scope for evolution and development. And it sounds like a you know, nimble market in that sense. Thank you so much to both of you, Ben and John, for sharing your insights on this podcast today. And thank you to the listeners for listening. Ben and John are writing a client alert which addresses many of the issues spoken about in this podcast. So please look forward out for that. Thank you again. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you. Thank you.